Alex, hi, how are you doing? Hi, Richmond. Yeah, I'm good. Great to be here. And uh, nice to be sat inside on a cold autumnal day, actually. Well, where, where are you at the moment? Um, I'm in Kendall, so I'm just on the edge of the, of the Lake District. Um, yeah. We all say it's in the lakes when technically it that it's near enough. Ah, OK. Well, well, so if it's not in the lakes, where, where is it? Well, the Lake District is only, well, the actual National Park boundary is only a few miles away. It's, it's still in class as being in the South Lakes. Um, so, yeah, it's in Cumbria. Um, I've been up here for about two, two years now, two and a half years. Um, I'm very lucky to have the mountains and my happy place on my doorstep. Um, I'm from Chester, you know, originally. Um, but I've, I've been up here now for, for a while and really, really grateful to be. Yeah, well, it's it's a beautiful spot. I've, I've only been up there a few times and it's always sort of on the list. Must must get up there more often. And and, and where you're positioned, there's there's great history, really, isn't there, in terms of running and fell running? Yeah, I mean, the fell running scene kind of was was born here, really. Um, and I've recently been getting more and more into that. And that was largely my reason for moving up here is I was spending so much time running in the fells here and just finding this very happy place that I I wanted to have more of it. I wanted to make it more of my lifestyle. But um, the Felwing legends from, you know, Joss Naylor to Billy Bland and the Bob Graham Round, it's all started here and it's still very much a big part of the community. So there's there's so much here for everybody. And um, I think I realised already that it's going to take me a lifetime to even cover half of it, um, which has given me quite a mission to work on. <laughs> yeah no for sure i mean just hearing you say that i'm i'm almost wanting to end this here and pack a bag and 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 sort of head on up um but but i won't because we got some important things to to talk about because you know you've achieved a huge amount um in 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 what seems to be a really short period of time well people often say that you know for me it never feels enough and maybe that's half the challenge but uh I've had a busy few years. I mean, I'm 26 and, uh, um, you know, I've, I've been kind of in this world now for, well, I would say a long time, but it's a relatively long time, at least compared to me, um, speaking about my adventures, going on them, writing books about them, raising money for charity for, through them. Um, I more recently started my own charity to try and take people on that same journey. Yeah. Um, I'm probably most known for Everest, making two attempts in 2018 and, and 2019, which ended in disaster. And the journey to get there itself was, was a challenge, but actually the way that journey's evolved and taken me on a completely different path is kind of what's brought me to where I am today. And, and, and nowadays I tend to focus on ultra running and ultra endurance, um, but still very much doing challenges and trying to achieve my full potential and, and now use that as only as not only a career but actually making a, a bigger difference to other people hopefully as well yeah yeah so well let's let's go back then you know Everest now you know that's that's probably the most famous mountain in the world um the, the tallest uh, and I, I I know very little about mountaineering um and as someone who has a has a terrible fear of heights that's probably partly why um, I did try. I did run over Snowden and, and scared myself a lot. Um, but but to you, that's that's probably easy easy pickings. But how did that come about? How did Everest come about? It came about, I guess, forged from adversity. You know, looking for something to fight back. And 
as a as a kid, I you know I'm going to tell the typical story of the kid that had a hard time at school and was bullied and, and all that and hated sport. But that was me. Um, I had epilepsy very mildly when I was younger, and that triggered a lot of issues with anxiety. I've had a stammer all my life, which as a as a professional speaker now is quite un- unlikely. Um, you know, I I really didn't belong. I hated school. Um, I was relentlessly bullied. And never really found myself, you know, I was suffering with anxiety and panic attacks as a result. And I guess the escape from all that came when I was about 14, when I found the outdoors. Um, I'd always enjoyed sort of knocking around on my mountain bike, but it was when I was paragliding in Turkey, when I was again about 14 years old on holiday, that everything suddenly switched, simply by changing my mindset, you know, focusing on actually we don't always get to choose our challenges in life, but we can choose how we respond. And the outdoors gave me that that vehicle to fight back. It gave me somewhere where I, I really felt I belonged and found this confidence I never had before. And like every runner who does a marathon, you know, you know, you say never again, but you always want that next challenge, that next challenge. And um, it was the stroke of events really that all came together at the right time. And I was invited hill walking in the Lake District with my friend and his parents, um, you know, on a family holiday. And that trip to Keswick in the North Lakes, again, was pretty instrumental because that first hill walk near Blancafra planted the whole seed around Everest of this random question, you know, where is Mount Everest? So being a kind of a curious young kid, I came home and went on Google and I just became really captivated by this whole idea of standing on the world's highest peak. It just seemed to tick all the boxes. You know, it, it was a way to prove myself and to prove all those bullies wrong, to really rise above all that. And I wanted to feel worthy of this extraordinary thing. Um, I think like all of us, we all have those wild childhood dreams that never really unfold. But I was kind of subconsciously taking steps towards it over the next few years, climbing, um, mountaineering in the Alps, Mont Blanc, the Himalayas, um, basically asking other, other climbers, you know, how could I be like them? How could I learn from them? And uh, I think I was I was starting taking steps towards it. You know, I think most of us, you know, dreams remain as dreams because we don't commit. And I committed, you know, that one day I was going to get there. But if you'd asked me at 14, I never would have imagined that four years later, I'd actually be at Everest Base Camp about to make an attempt on an expedition. So I guess to cut the long story short, I mean, I wrote a book on this. There was that much to it. Um, I raised the money through corporate sponsorship. You know, that was about 35K um, when I was still at sixth form, doing my A-levels, working part-time, washing pots in my local pub. There was no rich parents and just sign me a check you know I, I had to find a way I'll make one um as well as all the training and the prep and just jump in the hoops yeah. so I guess part one of the story is just to get there yeah um yeah how did you pitch it to to the corporate so there you are you're in you're in college and you you've got this dream of climbing Everest having having started walking in in the Lake District I mean slight difference between the two um yeah how, how did you how did you take it to the corporates i think the key was just to learn from others you know look at their approach and how i could improve it and i was lucky to come across some other young climbers that had had a similar background to me that had, had to go out and find the funding um 
I think just knowing other people have been there, okay, only a, a, a very small minority, a handful, was enough to show me it was possible. And it was really about 100% commitment. You know, I, I committed everything. I say everything, but everything I had at the time, um, which as a, an 18-year-old is pretty minimal, um, to making this goal happen. You know, every single day revolved around the question, will this get me to Everest? And that pitch, I guess, involved having 100% self-belief and creating what was kind of a unique offering. I mean, I would have been the second youngest Brit to climb the mountain had I been successful. And I think businesses always have this interest in Everest. You know, it's taken their business to the very top of the world. And nowadays it's really changed. I think it'd be a lot harder now, but back then it was still very interesting and relevant. Um, and I think it was just spending a full year, day in and day out, contacting over a thousand businesses um, giving them a chance to be part of this, you know, and it all could have been to nothing. But I think the businesses that did eventually believe in me, you know, they've been there. They've been the young entrepreneur who looking to find success and looking to find funding. And they had an interest in Everest themselves. So they felt like they were giving me the leg up. Um, and I got the funding together just four weeks before I went. But wow. the success of that was all down to the advice and the mentoring I had, you know, and people that never stopped believing in me. Well, were there some particular people who were there by your side, the mentors, coaches? Definitely. I mean, my parents have always been very supportive, but they don't really get the outdoor adventure world. You know, my dad's a marathon runner. That's how I got into running, but definitely weren't really in this world at all. So um, my first mentor was um, was Chris, who I met him through our local fundraising fair um, at the village school. And he worked as a, a coach in, you know, in senior businesses. And I had approached him for help with my stammer originally, but it kind of involved into this mentor relationship, basically learning everything I needed to know around business because I had no idea how to email a CEO or email a, an MD. Um, I was a complete novice. So Chris was instrumental. And interestingly, we, we both started the charity last year together. So it's a really evolved nicely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Chris was key, and then you know, first first time around there was there was John Thompson, um, a brigadier in the army who obviously had that that background that really kickstarted my speaking career. So there were lots of people like that, but I think first and foremost it was probably the other climbers that had been there because they were the only proof that this was even achievable. Yeah, yeah. So there was this climbing community. How how did you tap into that? The climbing community is interesting. I mean, I don't, it's a lot more clicky than running. And there is a lot of ego on Everest. There's no shying away from that. People are there for their own reasons. They have to be. And there is a lot of hostility towards younger climbers. And, and I know Everest has a bit of a bad rep. It's not seen as a mountaineer's mountain. But to be honest, I was never doing it to fit in. I was doing it for a personal, a personal ambition and doing whatever was required to, to achieve that. Um, so there wasn't so much of a climbing community, but my expedition leader, Tim, was very much a mentor as well, because he was the first one who inspired me all those years ago. He took me on my very first rock climb um, and kind of led me to jump the hoops that I would need to make sure I was in the right position to do this safely. Mm. Uh, but when you get on the mountain, it's it was quite... It, some of us, there were some incredible people that now are, are the best of friends, but... There were also a lot of difficult characters that didn't really accept me for being there so young. Um, 
So you have to very quickly shake that off because you don't want to be dealing with that and politics on an 8,000 meter mountain. Um, that's dangerous. So what I do love around the climate community though is when you're on the expedition is you can, you can meet people from all walks of life who are all there for the different reasons combined by this common goal. Um, and that can be a really powerful experience. It can also bring its challenges. Mm. So you, when, did you, when did you do your first sort of bit of, if you like, technical climbing, whether it be on a wall or, or some kind of face? How, how old were you? Um, my first rock climb was in the lakes with Tim when I was, it would have been just after the paragliding, so probably about 2010. So um, 11 years ago, I would have been about 14, 15. Okay. So, so there we, you've got, what was it? Three, three years from that first rock face to being on Everest. When I look back, it was, yeah, it was about three or four years. Yeah. And I think if I look back now, you know, I would have liked more preparation and build up. I didn't feel that I was underprepared, but typically this is where there is, a conventional train of thought around Everest that you need decades of experience. And that's definitely not a bad approach at all. But because of my position, you know, I was able to commit to doing quite a lot in a short time. I didn't have a, a full-time job to work around. I didn't have a family. Um, that was partially part of the rush for doing it so young is the younger I was, the easier it would be to get sponsorship. Um, but also I was able to work on sponsorship full-time round whilst working in a pub just to, pay my rent really and survive off um so i was in a very kind of time rich position really yeah and and the, the say the last year or so maybe maybe the last two years if if i was a fly on the wall kind of watching your your training your preparation for this what what would it look like each week i think they changed both times around because the first time around i had focused on endurance through cycling um a lot of road miles just for low impact and low in injury risk especially um whilst getting a lot of time out out in the open but also you, you generally break it down into kind of three categories you know you've got the fitness training you've got the altitude and you've got the technical skills the, t the last two kind of work together you know you, you need to be able to look after yourself at high altitude you also need to be able to be good with the ropes and the kit and just be very competent on the mountain. You know, a lot of that was done in Scotland, um, you know, climbing uh, in winter because it's those conditions that you really train you to, um, you know, take care of yourself when, when things are going wrong. You know, something like losing a glove on Everest can be a life or death situation. So okay, Scotland may not have the altitude, but it's got probably worse weather than you'll experience on Everest. Oh, really? um, you've then got to go and spend time at altitude. You've got to know how you perform. And obviously you can't train at altitude, but I did a, you know, a 7,000 meter peak before Everest to get an idea of, you know, how I was going to be at that kind of acclimatization. Um, and what I learned and, and probably adapted is that fitness actually does very little for you, you know, but it makes sense to train your body and be as strong as you physically can. Um, so someone's at the door now, excuse me, this is the, uh, the off-piece bit. Um, but I think that was, that was key, really, was to have those three elements working together. Um, and my physical training was cycling a lot in the gym, strength. You know, I'm not built for strength. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a marathon runner. 
you know, so there's a lot of time doing that. Um, the second time round was a lot more in the mountains and I did some more multi-day endurance challenges um, in the gap between them just to train the mental aspects because what I really learned is Everest is probably 90% mental, only 10% physical. Um, and it doesn't matter how good you are in the gym if you haven't got the steering wheel to move you forwards. Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. So, I mean, that's a fascinating kind of transition. And then you've taken that lot, all that stuff you've learned over those years, and and then you set off. I mean, what, what was that like setting off? And, and I guess the first step is is getting to, to base camp. I mean, when you, so when you get on the trip itself, I mean, you know, it's like a marathon, you know, when it comes to the day itself, you're never quite rested in the way you'd like to be. You know, everything happens very, very quickly. With every challenge I've ever had, you never have this perfect period of rest beforehand. It's just a flurry. But when you get on the mountain, you know, you, you get the mix of emotions and then you've got about, well, you, you, you're there for two months um, and it's three weeks alone just to get to base camp. So we take a slightly longer trek in to give us more time to acclimatize. You know, acclimatization is key. Mm. Um, and you're just taking your time. You know, you want to arrive in base camp in the in the best possible shape. Um, so it's it's a bit difficult in that sense that, you know, you climb again, you're seeing, you're up on the mountain and you're thinking, how the hell am I going to climb that <laughs> if I feel like this down here? <laughs> And it's, uh, yeah, it, it can be, this is where the mental game kicks in, is you've got to be unflappable. You've got to be able to take it a day at a time. Um, but we didn't even get a chance to experience that because the day before we got to base camp, a huge avalanche killed 16 people. Um, and after a week of waiting around, we had to pack up and go home without stepping a single foot on the mountain. So suddenly all that time, effort, training is just yeah. gone. Wow. I mean, was that something that you'd, you'd considered, not specifically an avalanche, you know, tra and tragic loss of life, but, but the fact that, that it does seem that the whole thing's quite precarious in, in that way. At, at any point, you'd have to stop. And, and unfortunately, you had to stop kind of before you'd started really climbing. Yeah, I mean, we had no choice, you know, and I think what you learn from that is that no matter how hard you work, you know, the mountain doesn't give a damn. <laughs> a bit like COVID, you know, it doesn't care how much you spend. It doesn't care about your holiday you've got planned, you know. And that for me was, as a naive 18-year-old, was the first lesson is that, you know, failure is inevitable sometimes. But that's when you redefine failure as actually success is about how we pick ourselves back up again. Mm. You know, we, you, you know, we put so much into this um you train and train but you can't train for something like that we couldn't train for the pandemic um so after coming back and kind of licking my wounds and feeling sorry for myself it was a case of right what do i learn from this you know how do i come back stronger um i, I, I won't pretend that i was super positive straight away you know it was really difficult but um i just had to take another year out to train even harder to come back stronger and uh i think to work on the weaknesses because i really struggled with the altitude you know, despite my age and apparent fitness, I was the weakest on the team. Um, before we even got to base camp, I was in quite a bad way. So that's why I wanted to develop that endurance, that multi-day 
back to back fitness and um, putting myself really out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, so that involved a number of a number of daft challenges before going back in 2019. And uh, who could have known that in 2019 it, it would have been even worse? Um, we'd uh, we've been on the same team, the same format, and uh, literally just a few hours after leaving base camp um, for camp one, we were hit by the Nepal earthquake, and we were stuck on the mountain for, for two days. We got hit by an avalanche. Um, Sadly, base camp was wiped out and three of our team went with it. You know, we were stuck on the mountain for two days, 6,000 metres. Well, I mean, that's, well, I mean, how, how did you cope with that? You have no choice. <laughs> um, and this is where you really learn resilience, you know, is when you're going through the proverbials like that. I think, I think as a 19-year-old, you know, you've got no life experience of that. and you're in shock you know you're going into survival mode and I think all of us have been living in survival mode at times during the pandemic we we literally just had to focus on what we could control which is 6,000 meters you know at camp one we've got 7,000 meter peaks either side of us we're being avalanched by aftershocks probably every half an hour the route down to base camp is gone Uh, we're told to be there for a week we've got food and supplies for maybe a day or two at most and all you can control is staying hydrated, staying fueled, your attitude, and looking after each other. Um, everybody obviously responded differently. You know, I just lay there like a vegetable for two days. But, uh, you know, when I, when I look, look back at it, it's very, very difficult to override that. Um, but at the time, to be honest, it was like a blur. You know, I didn't want to be anywhere. I just remember calling my mum on a satellite phone and there was no news of the avalanche or anything at this point. Um, so I remember ringing her and just saying, well, hearing this kind of relief of, hi, how are you doing? How are you feeling? It's like, right, there's been a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and then being sworn and cursed at down the phone and feeling my heart break with guilt that there was nothing either of us could do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, 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 don't cope. you do cope with it because you have to. You know, you, you have to be there for the rest of the team. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was the exit route then? I mean, how, how did, what, what happened? We were airlifted off by helicopter, two people at a time because the air was so thin mm. and that was our only real option down. Uh, we were up there for two days, but obviously we had no idea how long it might take. To be honest, at that point, I'd given up caring. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were very lucky to get down. And uh, we came down to base camp to find what I can only describe as a, pl- as a plane crash. I mean, when, when you think about that experience and, you know, you can't imagine what it's like unless you, you've been there. It, it kind of puts so many of the day to day, you know, troubles and woes and things people complain about. Just I mean, it's they're not even in the same ballpark by any stretch of the imagination. So. Do you find that now you can still appreciate, you know, people when they have what will seem to be minor worries when you've experienced what you've experienced? It's a really good question and good observation as well, because I think personally it makes a big difference. You know, you don't worry about the bus being a few minutes late when you've been on Everest and stuck for two days, you know, and um, 
you know, you know physically and mentally what you're capable of. But at the same time, it's all relative. You know, I've been on holiday with my family and they'll be causing a big flap and a big roar because there's a delay or something else isn't happening. And you just become very unflappable. That doesn't mean I don't get stressed over trivialities. It doesn't mean that I don't have days when I struggle to motivate myself. Um, I get stressed over things I know I shouldn't get stressed about. And it's important to remember the people around us only have their own reference point. They only have their own experience. And I don't like it, people saying to me, oh, cheer up, it could be worse, because my resilience isn't always at that level. Yeah. You know, I've got to work with how I feel at the moment in time. And, and what may be a big issue to somebody else might not be for you. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think personally, but you have to be sensitive to others around you, you know, and, you know, I often feel frustrated that I don't have the same resilience that I had back then, but it's like an athlete. You can't be at your A game all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been in wet, miserable weather over here and just had a massive panic because I've hated it. I've hated it. But I had in those environments, I had a choice to be there. Um, I'm not trying to survive. So it's a different situation. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was listening to um, a podcast, um, The Way Out Is In, which comes from the Plum Village monastic community in, in France. And and they were talking about, um, you know, Buddhist monks and nuns and, and, and the things that they do. And, and the fact that we we, we all even if you you've had such an experience, even if you've had to have great resilience in that moment, unless you're continually practicing such things, then like any skill, it, it kind of fades somewhat. I mean, obviously it'll vary from person, but I'm not sure you can even measure it. But I thought that was a really good point because you, you needed a certain type of resilience that, that you know, very few people will ever really need in their lives. And you needed that then, and you had it. And, and it didn't just grow in that moment, you, you had it. And it's probably still there if you happen to be in that situation again. But day to day, you don't really need it. Not, that, not to that level really good observation again because no you're right you know we don't have a near-death experience every day and the pandemic is the closest thing that I've had to it that anyone's had to it and I found that's why I I would say I've coped with the pandemic fairly well um because I look for the opportunity I look for the things I can control these things are happening probably subconsciously without even knowing about it um and I would love to go back to Everest now with everything I've learned since from ultramarathons, from other challenges, because I think mentally I would hold it together so much better. Um, and interestingly, some of the guys on our team, you know, have been in the army. They were medics. They were doctors. They were used to that environment. And naturally, when, when things hit the fan, they were the people you wanted to be around. You know, they were unflappable because they probably had that reference point. I was learning on the job. Yeah. But it's true that, you know, we don't have to deal with anything quite like that. And I think I'm probably calmer than I realise about the small things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think also you go into kind of a survival mode. You really want adrenaline, you know, that trying to reach that point is, is very difficult. Mm. Yeah, you need the circumstance, don't you? And, and mm. well, hopefully you won't have that circumstance. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but going into then the the ultra running um and then 2020 your your challenge three peaks challenge where where did that idea come from well with 
should have made maybe just to start with the Free Peaks Run uh, is my most recent big thing. Um, I want to say the Free Peaks Challenge. You know, people would be familiar with the National Free Peaks, um, Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike and Snowden. But I decided to do it a bit differently and run the entire distance between them. Um, and obviously climbing the mountains as well. So about 450 miles in nine and a half days, uh, 17 marathons. <laughs> and to put it in, in, in perspective, I mean, I'd come from a, a road running background. You know, I've been running kind of semi-competitively since 2012. I took a break for two, three years because of Everest. You know, I had a big injury, which then was the trigger of my own mental health battles. So I... I was so committed to Everest. I didn't run just for the sake of not getting injured again. I didn't fear the fear of that. But I got back to running in 2016 properly. And I started to get very disenfranchised with um, chasing targets and trying to run faster marathons. I mean, I was never elite level and I never would be. Um, but it became a bit of an unhealthy process. So I started to shift towards tail running where suddenly you've got a very level playing field and I'm at the back of the pack. And um, I think after Everest, I had to really reinvent myself. You know, I, I had this big mental breakdown, this PTSD guilt, survivor's guilt thing. Um, and it was a really difficult time. You know, my whole life had revolved around reaching Everest and then suddenly it's like, what's next? Mm. Um, and, and so that's what inspired me to look a bit close to home, you know, doing challenges in the UK and finding I could get the same reward for, from doing that. Um, and so I did climb the UK in 2017, which was climbing to the highest point of all 100 UK counties, uh, 5,000 miles of cycling, walking, running and kayaking in 72 days, which was really rewarding. But then I've shifted then into more an ultra running basis and I had a bit of a, a year off in 2019 and wanted to find that next focus. And the Three Peaks was ridiculous enough, scary enough, but also played to my strengths of running um, that it took the boxes. And to be honest, I'd never doubted myself as much before a challenge as this, more than Everest. Because right. I was in new territory you know, I never run an ultra before, and then I've decided to do nine in nine days. So you've um, not, sorry, you you'd not done any ultra marathons. I'd not officially. So I'd done, um, I'd done one thirty-five mile training run. I'd run a few marathons, but I'd not ran beyond thirty-five miles. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily hadn't done a race. Yeah, so, so I 35 miles was the furthest that you had run in one go before yeah. going on this this more than 450 mile journey up and down steep things. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you can imagine why there's this massive imposter syndrome of who the hell do I think I am? You know, when when I put it out there, you know, I, I, I kind of toyed with the idea for a while. It's a bit like an entrepreneurial you know, quality control process. You kind of have an idea and you're not sure whether it's going to do it. And you're in that very fickle balance between it's got to scare the hell out of you and also be achievable. You know, it's a very, very fine line. And the three peaks put me well over that. But when I put it out there, you know, a lot of experienced and respected ultra runners were kind of commenting and praising it and saying, wow, I can't wait. And I'm thinking, 
what do they know that I don't? <laughs> um, and I found out the hard way. Um, but remains probably the physically toughest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's tough. So so that was that was nine and a half days, yeah. Yeah, nine days, twelve hours. Um I was trying to break the record, uh, which I missed by about an hour at the time. Um but but yeah, I mean I'm running on average fifty miles a day. Fifty miles a day, nine days. And and let's make it clear, you know, the this is not running on the flat either. This is going, you know. There was a lot Damon of would, Damien would say, you know, lumpy. Lumpy, lumpy terrain. Yeah, definitely in Scotland. I mean, day one had about 10,000 feet of ascent um, and 50 miles and then Nevis. But there was a lot of flat tarmac. And to be honest, it was the tarmac that broke me because I hadn't really trained. Well, you can't train for that. But I most of my running now is in the fells and on the trails, um, which has really reduced my injuries. But... When I hit the tarmac on day two, it was like I'd been hit by a bus because <laughs> I wasn't conditioned for it. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of flat tarmac, especially towards the end. So just basically just running on road to get from one place to the next. Yeah, yeah. Um, until Snowden, the final hurdle. Yeah. And, and you, you were self-supporting, is that right? The plan was to be entirely self-supported and that very quickly fell apart because I realized what I, what I, what I'd bitten off. Um, I had people running with me. I had people in support car for probably 75%, 80% of the journey. Um, but I didn't have like a dedicated vehicle all the way. You know, I was calling on favors of friends fairly last minute when I started to struggle, you know, and day four, um, I could barely run more than 10 meters at a time. You know, the pain in my shins was like I'd been hit by a hammer. And this was the and that, running on the road mainly. Yeah, yeah. And every day another body part went, you know, and it defies logic. You think, how on earth am I going to be able to carry on another 50 miles, you know, let alone five miles? Mm. Um, but there's always a plan B. You know, this too will pass. And there was always a way, to, a way around it. You know, a lot can change in a day and, and the support came at the right time. And even just seeing a physio or a sports massage um, was enough to get me going. Yeah. You know, you really got to define me- any medical logic because day two, I had te- tendonitis in my feet. Um, day three was my knees. Day four was my shins. Um, day five, I fell down the stairs and pulled, uh, pulled the perineal tendon. And the resilience of the human body is just astounding. Yeah, I mean, as you probably know, I've got quite an interest in that. Um, and, and, you know, ultra runners provide, you know, superb examples of, of that. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you, we, we say, and you use the phrase, you know, defying kind of medical science and all of that, or maybe it's not science, it's just medical ideas. And maybe those medical ideas are just wrong. Because if you're running 450 miles, I mean, in essence, of course, you're going to get some sort of tendonitis. Yeah. Um, but it but does it mean that that's a problem? Does it mean you have to stop? Well, clearly no. Now you're not going to advise people to do that all the time. You know, this was for a particular event, knowing that it was going to come to an end, and then you could rest and recover. Um, yeah. But I think it demonstrates such a huge amount about our our ability as human beings. Definitely, and it's a really fascinating subject because. I think ultimately it's always going to come down to the individual and how much they want something. Yeah. 
yeah, people will tell you to stop. And ultimately, um, you know, I remember on the challenge about day four, day five, I was, I was hobbling down Scarfell Pike and one of my sponsors had emailed me basically saying, we've been watching you with some concern. We really think you should, you should quit. You should, you know, you're clearly not going to break the record. Um, we're worried about your cause and damage. Um, we're, we're, we're really going to support you anyway with your fundraising, but why not quit and try again another time? And part of me thought, okay, this, I've never had this before. This is time. But then part of me went back to the childhood bullying and thought, sob that, you know, this is, this is where I'm, I kind of, I find that, I love finding that resource to carry on that a little bit further because sure, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, people think, well, you're going to do yourself more damage. But whenever I read about all the top elite ultra runners and, you know, people doing incredibly inspiring stuff like Damien Hall and John Kelly and, people like that, they are, they are superhuman, but ultimately I think this is part of the parcel and it's knowing yourself and knowing your body and knowing what you're willing to risk. Because when I saw the sports massages on, on day four and then and day six, they weren't really fixing me. They were more just patching me up to be able to keep on going. And they said, yeah, you've probably got a bit of tendonitis. You've probably got a bit of compartment syndrome, probably a bit of that, but there's no reason you shouldn't carry on. Um, they are essentially patching you up to keep on going. And that is what these things are about because yeah, there is longer, you know, people think about being able to do this in the future and, you know, that kind of longevity, but then you look at people like Joss Naylor who are still going in, you know, in their older years and, and still inspirational. And I think to be able to achieve anything extraordinary, you have to be willing to push past that point because I have age on my side, you know, sure enough, I recovered. It took me a while but I'm now back to running and, and enjoying what I'm doing. And it's interesting, you know, after my bog brain round recently, um, I ended up, I actually had a bit of a bad turn after that and ended up in hospital afterwards, you know, the hypothermia right. and something I'd never even expected or, or planned for. Um, and around me on the ward, you know, there was somebody having a heart attack. There was somebody that had been that had been stabbed on a night out. There was somebody there that was there for, well, there was about three people there um, that had drank too much or had the drink spiked. All these very much lifestyle related incidents. And then there's me having just run 66 miles in 27 hours. And there was a nurse there saying, why'd you do that? You know, so what are you not going to do again? But then you think we're all, you know, what's better? <laughs> I mean, I'd rather do something meaningful. Uh, not that I'm going to ever intentionally put myself at risk but i think um i think we are physically and mentally capable of so much more than we think but we we end up taking no risk and then taking a bigger risk by doing nothing yeah yeah i think just going back to what you're saying about the um the sports masseurs and, and whatnot or, or the physios or, or or friends i think there's there's something above that that's that's about the connection it's about them in a sense you know with the massage or hands-on it can just be some kind of soothing which just changes your state and just makes you realize oh okay yeah maybe it's not as bad i just feel a little bit calmer now okay well maybe i can keep going no what, what do you think definitely and i think it's it's almost a, a placebo effect you know whenever i have an injury just by having a consultation so I know what I'm dealing with, 
makes it so much better. Um, but it's also having the right support, having the right physio, because I have a, you know, I have a couple of great physios who are runners themselves and therefore they empathize. Whereas if you, if you see, you know, a non-runner physio, they'll probably take a more conservative approach and tell you, oh, you should just rest, you know, just rest until it gets better. Whereas I work with physios that have that mentality of actually sometimes rest can be the worst possible thing because you've got the mental health side of it as well. Um, and also, you know, I think they've been there, you know, they can empathize with the end goal and almost you've committed so much to being there that, uh, that as long as the outcome um, outweighs the risks, then I think it's fair that you only you can make that call. Yeah. And it's knowing the difference between an excuse and a genuine reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and actually, when I look back now, it's those moments of being able to find a way through that now that I'm most grateful for because they've really shown me what I'm capable of and what mentally we are capable of. Um, and that's certainly been helpful with dealing with anxiety because I know I've been in worse places and worse situations and got through them. But absolutely, with having those people, it's it's almost knowing they believe in you, you know, and they are willing, they know that how committed you are and they're going to help you to do whatever's needed, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've just made me feel really bad about um, a DNF that I um, performed on myself in September, but we won't um, we won't dwell on that. Well, no, um, because I think every top athlete will go there, and you know, I don't think I've actually I had a, a DNF at a half marathon, you know, five years ago because that was completely mental. You know, I was in a really bad place, and I just got to mile eight, and I just blew up. I just it wasn't even an injury. I had no reason to quit, but I, I just lost my reason for running. Um, I've, I've heard recently some of the top elites have had their first DNF, and it's a learning process. Um, you know, ultimately, if there is no, if a reason to keep on going isn't strong enough, then absolutely DNF can be the right thing to do. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure it will happen to me again as well. Yeah, well, you've just made me feel a, a smidgen better. Thank you. That's your job, though, isn't it? That's your job. Um, yeah, I'm here all week. <laughs> now, tell me about how, how this kind of took you into the, the mind over mountains. How, how did that evolve? Yeah, so Mind Over Mountains is a mental health charity. Uh, we've been registered since August last year. And we aim to restore mental health through therapeutic outdoor experiences. Most of that means day walks and weekend retreats uh, in the UK national parks combining that with coaching, counselling, inspirational speakers and mindfulness, just giving people the holistic self-help skills to restore their resilience and improve their mental health. Um, the idea came off the back of my Climbing UK challenge when I was invited to, to lead an event around promoting hill walking for mental health. And uh, from that, um, we did this weekend in the Lake District, Skiddle House, with a, a company called Adventure Uncovered, who they're doing some really cool stuff, actually, around impact events for the climate and for social change. And um, that weekend was something so much more than just hill walking, because we know it helps to exercise. We know we feel better for getting outside, but how can you create sustainable change from that? Um, so that weekend was really inspiring is just the difference it had on people by kind of combining these elements so um me and chris my mentor he's a coach and a counselor as well decided to set it up as a charity so we could do more of these events on a more charitable basis um 
and we've kind of gone from there you know but obviously then we had COVID to deal with so we adapted the weekend it's like a one-day walk um same benefits you know but taking it all over the UK and you know people pay to come on the events but obviously we have bursaries for people that are in financial hardship so that everybody can afford you know the the the, the support that they need and deserve uh, because we believe everybody should have access to these places. Yeah, I think the real driver behind it, though, was after Everest, it took me longer to get an appointment for my depression and my eating disorder than it did to cycle 5,000 miles around the UK. Wow. So you bring that to home, actually, you realise we need a more sustainable approach. We need to make support more available. Um, and so Mind Over Mountains is that. And, you know, we've grown very, very quickly. We're now operating in 10 regions across the UK, England and Wales, hopefully Scotland next year, um, working with the NHS, working with some great charities and, and just really use COVID almost as an opportunity um, to help people when they've needed us most. Yeah. So that's kind of how it evolved, really. And um, it's now the focus of my fundraising. So, I mean, that, that's superb. And um, you, you mentioned before about, you know, opportunities from from the whole pandemic and and undoubtedly there have been and people getting outdoors more it seems to be one of those people being active there's a lot of coverage of people exercising and running and and these kinds of things so do you you feel that that's that's helped create this opportunity I mean people needed this anyway for sure but do you feel that's the case I think as you say it was already there but it's just highlighted uh, the importance of it and how disconnected we've been and it's interesting the human psyche when you take something away it suddenly becomes more valuable and you'll remember like last last april may last year everybody was out walking and and, and making the most of their daily exercise and crikey i felt so grateful to be in the lake districts and being able to escape into the mountains um but knowing that not everybody was so lucky so i think the pandemic has only highlighted that and also the gap between support and and demand um so so yeah i think it's been a positive really as, as a whole is people have, have recognized the importance of it and i just hope that it doesn't just dwindle down like most things you know as people get back to normal that actually things change and are put in place um and that nature plays a big part in that and in a holistic way really yeah 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 so what what kinds of people are you there for everybody really everybody over 18 we work with uh, all around the UK you know we've seen a real mix of, of of backgrounds from you know high achieving entrepreneurs and businessmen to you know NHS nurses that are burnt out been on the front line haven't seen the colleagues without masks for you know a year um, a lot of single parents a lot of mothers dealing with you know divorce and trying to manage kids and busy lives and just no time for themselves um a lot of social anxiety people have almost been very overwhelmed by the whole pandemic isolation um i don't want to say everybody but that is literally everybody you know we've we don't you know mental health doesn't discriminate and interestingly we do see a lot more women than men and i don't know whether that's a a men thing of not wanting to sign up something admitting that they are struggling um we, we can deal with people that have a more advanced problem you know such as perhaps ptsd or bipolar you know needing more specialist support to people that just need a bit of a break 
bit of time for themselves, but they just switch off. You know, we've taken people with, with disabilities um, because we think that the outdoors should be available for all. And we always try and um, accommodate that in the best way we can in a safe way, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you uh, say, it's, I mean, it's terrific and, and, and much needed. It sounds like an enormous project, though. It has become. And yeah, dealing with that alongside my own work as a speaker and, you know, working with brands and as an author, it, it's had its challenges, you know, and I think it's, I'm, I'm very open to say that, you know, as a, as, as a co-founder with Chris, I think it's probably jeopardised our own mental health at times. I know it certainly has for me and setting boundaries between that um, for something that's really important to you um, and making sure that when you're dealing with potentially vulnerable people, you know, you've got to manage it well. So, yeah, I'll admit it's given me a lot of mental health challenges um, in the last last year. But I'm not going to, I don't want that to put people off using the charity because now we have grown, we've brought in some paid staff now. We've we've really built a fantastic team of committed people um, who want to make this work and, and believe in the importance. Uh, but as a co-founder, you know, you want it to support as many people as possible. But I think what I've learned I think one thing for everybody to learn is not to give too much of yourself because we can't help others without helping ourselves first. Um, yeah, yeah. I've kind of changed my role recently to to support that as well. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, who who's caring for the carers? Well, that was why it was really nice for us to do a day walk for the NHS in Essex, you know, to give them a bit of care, time for themselves yeah. when they dealt with so much during COVID. And... That day was one of my favourites, I think. Um, but yeah, we do tend to give give a lot. And um, there's that kind of ironic term in the NHS and, and doctors and healthcare around, you know, take my advice, I don't use it anyway. And uh, <laughs> as a motivational speaker, I'm very guilty of that. I think, I think we all are at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said that, you know, people that are experiencing, you know, more perhaps more severe symptoms or conditions, PTSD, maybe, you know, major depression, that, that kind of thing. So you're now equipped to, to deal with that, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, this is where I think we, we're different to other charities is that we have that professional support on all our walks. So we'd have mountain leaders as well as trained coaches and counselors so that you have that emotional support available for people as well. You know, we, we really want to create a safe and confidential space for people to walk and talk. Um, but if you're taking people with, you know, quite severe challenges into a mountain environment, you know, which are potentially triggering, you've got to have that available. And we've been very grateful for that. I mean, obviously, I can't give you ex- examples, but um, on some of our walks, you know, people have had um, our challenges and we've been able to intervene and deal with that in a, in a safe way. Yeah. And and actually then show them that that if that happens there is a way of dealing with it to give them strength moving on sure yeah we want to encourage habits like that that are positive you know uh, create positive experiences because you know one positive walk in the lake district all those years ago has brought me to where i am today you know you just got to plant that seed of inspiration i think yeah yeah that family that family holiday you went on has, has got a lot to answer for but in an extremely positive way Absolutely. You know, and that's why I think getting people outside more often is, uh, is a great place to start, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, as for, as for actually running, I mean, 
I think that's probably been probably been my main sport. It's the only sport that I'm reasonably reasonably adapted for. I'm I'm hopeless at everything else. Um, and that all started on holiday in France with my dad and my stepmom. And um, my stepmom put a bet of two euros, two whole euros at 13, <laughs> that I couldn't go for a run with my dad and keep up. So naturally, I wanted that two euros. So I huffed and puffed and wheezed, but I kept up with it. <laughs> and, you know, my dad's been, well, a few weeks ago, my dad and my stepmom were there to watch me finish the 73 mile ultra. So, oh. um yeah, you know, a bit, a bit of bribery works as well. Yeah. What did you spend your two euros on? <laughs> it was a pan of chocolate. You know, it had to be. Um, and I, I learned that. <laughs> you had. You had. What, what did they give you at the end of the ultra? Um, a lift back to the hotel. Okay. Yeah, that's better Which than I'm... two euros at that point. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, after, you know, after sort of 16 hours of running, um, just to get me back to the hotel and a warm bed was, uh, was more than enough. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Great, great to have their their support. So, what what's the kind of the uh, the plan looking forward then? The plan looking forward, I think, now that COVID is kind of, I don't say gone, but is now becoming part of us rather than something bigger than us. I think that it's easy to plan, which is which is great. Um, my focus now is I really want to really build my speaking. You know, I, I speak on resilience and well being to corporate teams around the UK and, and abroad obviously it's all been virtual the last year or so um, but that's getting quite busy now so I'm, I'm really trying to expand that um, as I said my, my role in the charity is kind of changing so I'm looking more to open the doors and get the vision out there to everyone that needs it um, but I think at the moment I'm I think I'm dealing with a lot around you know burnout and managing my own expectations and just trying to take care of myself. So that's a, an ongoing process alongside all this. But I think from, from an adventure perspective, um, you know, there's no bucket lists now. It's more about constant raising the bar. And I've not really ran at the level I want to for a long time. Um, I'm nowhere near the times I was running a few years ago because I've not been committed. I mean, this year I've been committed to a Bob Graham round, which I did um, in August and then this ultra race, but uh, I need something bigger again, like a free peaks. I need to think of something on that level. And I've got a few ideas that I'm toying with, but uh, it's going to, going to be next year now, now that we're coming towards, you know, the autumn season. Um, it's suddenly too cold for wild swimming, as I found last weekend. <laughs> and uh, I'm really looking at perhaps using this autumn season to really to really build up consistency because uh, I'm really struggling to get a week without an injury or without something happening. I mean, I crashed my bike last week, so I've now probably lost another week of training. Um, and I think it's to get committed. And then when I've got a goal in mind, it will be throwing myself into that, raising as much as I possibly can and uh, looking for something that's a bit different because I think as an athlete, you, you can get stuck in that cycle of, entering race after race after race, but not really knowing why. And I need to choose between kind of a competitive reach my potential or stick into the unconventional path and doing more of these big, crazy ultra challenges that raise a lot of money. And I think that's kind of where I'm being drawn towards. So I guess watch this space really. Yeah. Well, I will be, we'll definitely be watching for sure. Um, isn't it, it's been fantastic to hear of your adventures so far. 
Um, and I mean, as I said at the beginning, I mean, in, you've achieved an incredible amount um, in in what is well, just a just a few years. So um, yeah, lot, lots more to to look forward to. I'm sure. Thank you. I hope so. So where where can people find you and and follow you? Yeah, I'd love to hear from people, and I just say as well, you know, that my my inbox is always open. Um, always happy to share and offer advice if it's if it's of any use. Um, but also around a mental health basis, you know, um, that that offer is always there. Uh, for people that maybe don't feel comfortable to you know, reach out in person, um, always find me, you know, a message or an email. Uh, my website alexstanley4th.com has my books and and has my email on there as well. But you can get me on all the main social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, again, links for that are on my face or on my website or just search my name. You'll find me. As for the charity, obviously, we're having events now all around the UK. So if, if, you, if you might be interested in, in one of the events, if you know somebody else that may benefit from coming along and finding a bit of space, then you can find out more about those on our website as well, uh, mindovermountains.org.uk. And uh and yeah, I think I, I just really would love to hear from people. And thank you for the opportunity to share a bit of the story and, you know, and uh, look forward to hearing more episodes as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take Cheers, care. Guys. Cheers.